0: Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio, and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. If you would like to support this podcast, you can go to paypal.com and donate any amount to history conspiracy podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. In 1962, Kerry Thornley completed a book called The Idle Warriors, which is based around someone he met in the Marines named Lee Javier Oswald. He would go on to be interviewed by the Warren Commission and be involved in the investigation of Jim Garrison about the assassination of President Kennedy. The first piece of audio today is that of Jim Garrison speaking about Kerry Thornley. And then we will have an extended interview with Kerry Thornley in his own words uh,
1: yeah is slowing down a little after, the day after the, is is Thornley's testimony. Uh, and reading this first you can then see more clearly than you otherwise could that it is a total fabrication that doesn't need any more that takes care of that, care of that medicine, let's, let's see if, if I can dispose of the, the, file the other document page. let's see if I can dispose of the other document just as briefly it is important for you Jim by the way I'm gonna record this. sure
2: Let the record say, he said, sure.
1: <laughs> We're talking about um, a, a rough summing up of uh, of the Kerry Thornley. It's not the entire case, because I don't have my basic file here, but what uh, we've developed and put together from other files just in the last week or so, as well as information he's given us is, puts Carrie Thornley into an interesting perspective uh, and just uh, for the benefit of whoever whatever you're going to do with that, that that's the purpose of, of the summary now the second thing that you we don't have to go into in any detail now but that you should read carefully on your own is this gratuitous affidavit that Carrie Thornley gave me that's very important after you have read that and learned that the man is a pathological liar in the service of some clandestine operation quite apparently connected with assassination you will then get quite a bit out of reading his 50 page affidavit now in order for the affidavit to be meaningful to you I have to add one more thing we won't go into it now because that would just take time it is important to understand as you see the rambling in the affidavit that this guy although I would say, would say there were uh, slight signs of his being a, a bit of ups- uh, upset he wasn't happy at being called the ranger grand jury what they called him was basically very cool he uh... Looking back, I would say, considering his relative youth, he had to uh, have been pretty well coached by a lawyer uh, because uh, he was not at all concerned about uh, any exposure or risks he felt he would carry the day. And usually a layman witness... Is ill at ease in the grand jury unless he's had some lawyer really assure him that uh, he's uh, he has nothing to worry about. Um, after all, uh, a district attorney has a degree of control of the grand jury, and this guy's a stranger in there without a lawyer. Did um,
3: he graduate, did he from no, he. You, you find when you read that,
1: that's one of thing things say. He explained in the grand jury that he, the Spanish, which he gave us an eloquent sample of, he learned in in college. But uh, uh, I found out uh, again that he just, looking through that, he had one year of college. And uh, there's no way the kind of Spanish you get in, in one year of college to be able to talk. You can read a little and that's it. Anyway, the point I'm making there is he was very cool, very organized, very much in control of himself in front of the grand jury, even though we knew he was lying. He did not know we knew he was lying because he did not know the statements we had obtained, the statements, for example, that indicated that he had been in Oswald's company here in New Orleans. Uh, uh, again he told the lie he told the Warren Commission he repeated the lie and said no he didn't know he was in New Orleans at the same time as Oswald he had no idea and by that time as I think you know we had uh, also talked to enough neighbors of the Oswalds down on Magazine Street to learn that uh, they had seen Thornley they picked his picture out immediately even Oswald picked corners out and I'd say uh, at least two perhaps three different neighbors uh, where they thought he was Oswald because they would see him with Marina frequently going to the Winn-Dixie store and uh, so that and a few other things uh, became the basis for the perjury charge afterwards but as to the grand jury appearance he was very cool and uh, would have charmed the jury except I think before we called him in we had uh, read some of those statements to them and they knew he was lying. Now, the point I'm making there is that when you read that 50-page gratuitous affidavit which he gave me last year when I was speaking in Georgia, you'll see what is a uh, distinct deterioration uh, the rambling it becomes almost incoherent uh, the story he attempts to put on me is uh, almost unbalanced in other words uh, the thrust of it as you will see is uh... mr garrison uh, i'm no longer mad at you i i realize that you had reasons for thinking i was involved and it's clear to me now but uh... I did come across some things while I was in New Orleans that may be useful to you, and I should pass it on. And with that lead-in, he then gives me uh, a story that that no child would attempt to, to, to sell anybody. Uh, some Nazis that he bumps into. They're not just ultra-conservatives. They're Nazis. And he overhears some of their plans to kill the president. And perhaps he should have reported that to me earlier, instead of waiting so long. In other words, it's totally and utterly impossible. And in between are his ramblings. So, and the way, so as you see that, you must understand this is not the same uh, Thornley as uh, we, as the Warren Commission is encountering in April of '64. Coffee no, coffee. is it the yeah. same cool Kerry yeah. Thornley yeah. that uh, we are questioning and uh, I think uh, yeah. somewhere around <coughs> he has now yeah. begun some form of deterioration uh, and I would judge it has a great deal to do with the things he did in 1963 because you would have to be really pathological uh, to, to live with if uh, he's done what I feel he's done Um, One more (coughs) thing about the 50-page affidavit. The way it developed was I was speaking at uh, Georgia State University, and just before the speech, the man that was going to introduce me, said, uh, you remember Kerry Thornley, Uh, don't you? uh, Yes. He'd like very much to speak to you. He's he's here. You mean he's a student here? Well, not exactly a student. He was a student, but he dropped out. But he hangs around the campus, and he knows a lot of people. And he's very interested in talking to He says, it's most important. And I said, uh, uh, in my usual tactful way, uh, I said, uh, you can send this message to Mr. Thornley. Tell him that the only reason I dropped the charge against him was because I decided that if they were going to let Play shall go then we would let may as well forget about prosecuting the smaller people but I am perfectly aware of what he did in 1963 a very tactful message one of my <laughs> chief virtues which probably didn't exactly do his psych too much good <laughs> uh, to begin with well when I finish making my speech um uh, the uh, masters, young master of ceremonies is driving me back to the hotel and he hands me an envelope and said, Carrie said uh, um, he, sorry you wouldn't meet with him, but he anticipated that and uh, in recent weeks he put together this affidavit because he wants you to, uh, to try and understand his position or something like that. So I said, well, I'm, I'll leave you. I read it that night and uh, realized two things. Uh, uh, incidentally, in passing, as uh, as we drove away from the auditorium, we said, oh, incidentally, there goes Carrie And the last time I'd seen him, although, as you've seen from the pictures, uh, which is the large picture of him, with a woman that's standing up. You got that? No, I don't get that it. Well, anyway, you've seen it. He's very thin. Almost very thin, but he wasn't uh, noticeably sloppy. His hair was uh, a little on the long side, uh, but just in the sense of being full. Um, I found myself looking at uh, at a beatnik of the lowest order. His hair, which was uh, kind of a blonde. now, well, more of a, a reddish blonde and uh, dirty appearing, and hung all the way down to his shoulders, but not combed uh, as if he hadn't combed it in days. He really, uh, and he was also um, uh, sartorially a mess. I don't, nothing wrong with blue jeans, but he was just plain sloppy and dirty looking. As a matter of fact, my immediate reaction uh, comparing him for the last time I saw him, even though he was casually dressed, was that uh, he must be on drugs uh, because to let himself deteriorate so physically and in appearance. And uh, I have no reason to change that impression. You know, some people, when they're fooling with pills and and get far enough uh, on pills, um, start getting awful sloppy because uh, they're using Downers... uh, uh, at night and then he are using the uppers and uh, pretty soon they become messes. You've seen, uh, I'm sure pretty girls become literally unattractive. Well, in that case, there's that kind of physical deterioration too. So, I went through this thing afterwards, this 50-page affidavit, and decided it was potentially useful. I was struck by the admissions he unconsciously May, which I'll now summarize, but uh, I was more struck when I re examined it a few months ago and uh, realized that it was more of a document than he he, he intended to give me. Now let me summarize just uh, in this one page uh, memo I have, which I gave Gait and Fonzie along with the 50 page uh, affidavit from Thorndyke. I have, Yeah. I have, uh, yeah. I have uh, do you have a copy of this? No, I don't have any. Yeah, it's in that, the copy that. I thought yeah, I gave one to everybody. Yeah. Here, I have an extra one right here. No, that's a,
2: that's a, that's a different oh, Wait, this is in the Thornley file now? Yeah, it should be. No, yeah. I've
1: had everything we produced by now in the Thorndyke file, so we have common files. You'll find it. But anyway, it says, Ray, 1976 affidavit of Gary Thornley. In particular, Ray, going to the substance of it, Bannister, Ferry, Mexico City, and Rosselli. And for the record, uh, um, in case anybody has to follow up, I might add that his address as far as uh, determinable, is uh, Georgia State University at uh, in Atlanta. It's in the city. And uh, he is a dropout who doesn't seem to work because I asked the fellow what he did. He just hangs around the university. Which means uh, looking back, uh, you recall that after the Warren Commission, he immediately left Washington and proceeded to uh, an unusual school out west. So that was 1964. So that means he's now in his 13th year of college uh, and uh, not even going to classes.
3: Did he have any previous ties to Georgia or the Atlanta area that you called? None
1: at all. Is... Uh, He's from California, literally from Whittier. That's where his parents live. And don't forget that his father's photo engraver. That could be something to keep in mind when you're looking for one. It might be from intelligence family. Um, he went to school at uh, Southern California, as you'll see in there, for one year. And uh, as I recall, because of... The incidents of young men coming in about that time, uh, there were indications that uh, some of the intelligence agencies were doing campus recruiting uh, in in the late 50s. Uh, And perhaps he was picked up at that time. In passing, it occurs to me that I think Gordon Novell was going to Southern California at just about the same time. And he ends up being... uh, a part of the same apparatus but with a totally different assignment uh, uh, mostly in his case electronics uh, and uh, the bunker incident now thornley admits in the course of this in between the paragraphs in which he's trying to convince me that he's innocent of involvement in assassination and that uh, certain nazis uh, really, the back of it, he makes these admissions. First, that he ar- arrived in New Orleans in early '61. The Bay of Pigs occurred in April 1961. New Orleans. This is uh, this is continuing my brief analysis, which I initially made for Gate and Fonzie of uh, of the uh, 50-page affidavit. New Orleans was used as a logistical base. I should add logistical and intelligence base and training area for anti-Castro activities by U.S. intelligence in the early 60s. For example, the attempted purchase of a Ford pickup truck, uh, that's a Bolton Ford in Oswald's name, while he was still in Russia, the training of anti-Castro guerrillas north of Lake I. come across some additional information this morning on, on that but I haven't had a chance to get to it I think referring to the location of another camp and another group of Cubans if I can't get to it before you leave I'll put it in the mail the next day or so so that would be two camps located only here's what he gives us Oh, here's what we learned and I added at this point he's uh, given us in the memo, that he arrived in New Orleans, in effect, before the Bay of Pigs, apparently to join the apparatus in and, and servicing it. And he would, it would have been useful because his Spanish seems to be fluent. We know from our earlier investigation of Kerry Thornley, since we long regarded him as a significant figure, that uh, he departed from New Orleans for Arlington, Virginia to uh, await his testimony in Washington before the Warren Commission. Uh, And I have December 1963. That would be because it's in his statement, but uh, the statement of Jack Spencer, which I will come to in a few minutes, has him departing much earlier than that. It has him departing up the literally days after the assassination for the Washington area. In New Orleans in 1961, according to the affidavit, Thornley, quote, accidentally meets Guy Bannister and discusses with him the book he's writing about Lee Oswald. This is the first of a series of encounters which uh, are entirely too coincidental to be happening to Carrie Thornley. Uh, especially when you add to it the great coincidental encounter uh, initially with Lee Harvey Osh. In 1962, Thornley accidentally meets David Ferry. Quote from his affidavit, I'm nearly sure that no significant conversation transpired. Unquote. In September of 63, Thornley visits Mexico City. Quote, example, from the affidavit. For many years, I had wanted to visit Mexico City. Five, also in September 63, Thornley is in New Orleans during the same period Oswald was. Later, he says, I began to realize that others might have good reason for suspecting me of being part of an assassination conspiracy, unquote. That's the understatement of the year. Six, from 1964 until June of 66, Thornley, admits in his affidavit, worked at Glen Towers Apartments in Los Angeles where he got to know a gentleman named John Rosselli who happened to live there. He mentions that they have conversations, speculating about the assassination. At this point, I should say that back in 1976, when uh, Thornley gave me this, John Rosselli had not been murdered yet, and and quite apparently in connection with uh, the possibility of his being called as as a witness in the assassination investigation, And uh, when you add that to all the other encounters, Kerry Thornley has bumped into too many people. He may be the only man in the world who has accidentally met Lee Harvey Oswald, Guy Bannister, Dave Ferry, and uh, John Rosselli. Now, Thornley is... uh, At the outset, the point about Thornley is that he is the leading candidate for what has been for years called the second Oswald. I think some of us for some years thought perhaps there were several alternate Oswalds, obviously used to set Oswald up by scenarios they went through, but... Or whatever it's worth, my conclusion now is it would have been more economical to use one man and safer to use one man, and he probably did use one man, and I think there are good reasons for believing that one man was Kerry Thorny, which is probably not unrelated to the fact that he, if he did that, that would be a good reason for deteriorating in the way he seems to be doing. One of the significant lies that Thorny told in the Warren Commission, the biggest lie of all, uh, parenthetically, is his portrait of Oswald as a communist. That literally made him the communist. That that is, uh, is, uh, I earlier used the analogy to the keystone of, of, of the Roman arch that holds the rest of it together. Thornley's testimony is the testimony in the Warren Commission that makes the communists. The rest of it is so irrelevant. You have people like babysitters when he was four years old. Bowenley is what the Warren Commission is built around. Uh, as a matter of fact, I gave you all uh, a little while ago statements of other Marines that lived longer with him and closer to him than the Marines. And one after the other says that uh, he was not communist oriented in any way, but this one of the most significant lies is Thornley's description of Oswald's height in his Warren Commission testimony, and this is very significant. They're both close to five eleven to make that point, but. It is almost impossible for a person who's 5'11 to think of another person who's 5'11 as being six inches shorter than him, needless to say. Yet in his description before the Warren Commission, he has Oswald as small as five feet five. He's asked by Jenner, was Oswald uh, shorter than you? Oh, yes. Well, I suggest that that is clearly an attempt to disassociate himself from something. And what would he be disassociating from himself from here? From possible identification as the second Oswald. That, if he were, for example, that would be his chief concern, having to surface and testify. He wouldn't want that possibility to arise. Anyway...
4: I compared their heights. By Cliff, do you have uh, this, and then I won't have to go through the whole thing if we look. Okay, then I just scan something. I don't think we have that. I want you to have we it because have this one, but I don't really have that one. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll really okay. I'll, in cases like this, I'll just summarize it. But I've given exact citations one after the other, so it, in order to show you, I'm not speculating that Oz was five eleven. One record after the other shows that he's 5'11". Then, somewhere along the line back in the 60s, uh, in the preparation for questioning him before the grand jury, we had sent for his driving license in California, and we learned from the driving license that he's 5'11". So, from the driving license of Carrie Thornley, we learned that he's approximately 5'11", and 150 pounds, And from the different marine examinations and passport uh, documents and so forth of Lee Oswald, we learned that he is approximately 5 feet 11 and 150 pounds, about as close as as two different people can be. Okay, now that we've made that point, we go on and uh, go into the... It feels like getting a cup of hot coffee and beginning to... If they have uh, any. Oh, yeah. Well, I've got a cold coffee than none, so don't empty it. You might ask the girl to bring it in. She said, that'll remind her Tell me if they have any coffee. I don't think they have any coffee. Oh, really? On so readily, it's uh, it's almost as if in some cases he answers, "Oh yes, I'm glad you brought that up because that leads to something else I wanted to say." And uh, he not only underscores by repetition, but he comes in on Oswald's supposed communism, Marxism, or whatever from different angles, as well as his rabidity. What do you think accounts for why he gave Oswald more, more height? There's a very clear reason for that, Cliff, and uh, you were out of the room when I explained, and that's why I went into trouble. Have you seen the authentication? Well, there's a very... I think there's only one reason in the world for that. Now, naturally, uh, you're asking me to speculate, and I identify the speculation, but this is the kind of situation uh, in which... You could stick your thumb in your mouth and say, well, there's no evidence uh, to uh, show us why um, Thornley made this man, who was the same size as him, made him nearly six inches shorter. And uh, that would be the end of it. But, fortunately, there's an approach to a problem like this, which I described earlier, as as applying models. Now, if you apply in, in the total context of the situation in which Thornley appears... Especially uh, keeping in, in your mind uh, the additional things we've learned about Thornley, uh, his uh, rather pathetic attempt with the long affidavit to get out of uh, this thing that seems to be closing in on him. Uh, if you apply a model, the applicable model, to Thornley, I suggest that the most rational answer as to why this man who is five feet eleven describes Oswald. Who is was the same height as being nearly six inches shorter. The most rational answer is that he played the role of the second Oswald repeatedly. The, uh, as you know, the guilty flea where no man pursues. Well, put yourself in a position for the sake of argument just to just to see what your response would be when you were asked about the height. Suppose you had participated in setting Oswald up and uh, so much... So and so consistently, for example, um, from going to rifle ranges before the the assassination, shooting at the target in the next lane so that they were the man a car canoe so they'll remember you the next day, Uh, going to downtown Lincoln-Mercury and driving, I don't think they could have gone 60 there, but let's say 50 miles an hour, something like that, and announcing that you're Lee Oswald and uh, if if they don't cooperate on the sales terms, will you get a car in Russia? and having the salesman put down your name. Uh, the endless scenarios. And Irving, going in the, the gun shop at Irving to have a gun fixed and leaving the name uh, Oswald. And, and uh, to the ultimate, uh, the ultimate uh, impersonation, which I suggest is uh, going to turn out to be the uh, two photographs of Oswald.
0: Here is Kerry Thornley in his own words in an interview from 1992.
2: start writing period, Um, what got you started?
3: Uh, I guess uh, really I got interested in reading poetry before I got interested in writing it. And the the first poet I became interested in was uh, Omar Khayyam, the Fitzgerald translation. And then uh, Walt Whitman and then uh, Allen Ginsberg. Uh, I got interested in Ginsberg when I read Howell, and uh, it was either 1959 or 1960. And then after that I started trying to write poetry of my own. Uh, I had written a little, uh, I wouldn't call it poetry anymore, I'd, I'd written some attempts at poetry when I was in college, when I was reading anthologies of poetry, discovering poetry really for the first time uh one of those poems was published in the blue river poetry review i found out later that that was a vanity press that they published anything anybody sent to them and then they sent them literature about how they could get their books of poetry published for a price and so on and so forth um so i really didn't uh didn't get into writing poetry seriously until uh oh about uh, 1961 when i got out of the marines and went to new orleans and at that point my purpose in life besides uh, finishing the novel I'd begun in the Marines was to, was to become a poet and uh, I saw myself as becoming uh, something like Allen Ginsberg I, I, I liked his writing very much and uh, I liked his his attitude toward life very much and uh, I got down to New Orleans and uh, I met an old retired newspaper reporter down there named Clint Bolton, who basically talked me out of becoming a poet or, uh, again.
2: okay, how'd you get started writing poetry?
3: Well, uh, I wrote my first serious poetry after I got out of the Marines in 1961 when I went to New Orleans, and, uh, at that time I was pretty much of a barroom poet. I used to not only, uh, read my poems in, in bar rooms to my friends and so on and so forth I used to often write them there and uh, previous to that I was uh, uh, in the Marines and I had discovered Allen Ginsberg at that time and before that in, uh in college I uh, read some anthologies of, of poetry writing and attempted a few poems one of them was published in the Blue River Poetry Review, which I later found out was a magazine that published everything anybody sent them, and then uh, uh, tried to, it was a vanity press that tried to sell them uh, uh, book publishing services for a price afterwards. Uh, previous to that, in high school, I was interested in Omar Khayyam. Uh, Fitzgerald's translation of Khayyam was really the first poetry I uh, ever became interested in and I wrote a lot of quatrains uh, uh, I don't remember any of them at this time uh, They were about modern-day things. They were usually political commentaries uh, When I got to New Orleans and started writing what I consider now to, to be serious poetry uh, I was eventually talked out of it by a uh, a uh, retired newspaper uh, reporter down there who was a friend of mine who wanted me to write novels, and he referred to poetry as Tuesday afternoon stuff, and by that he meant uh, uh, the Tuesday afternoon society. Uh, he just didn't think uh, you could get anywhere with poetry, and, and in some senses, uh, that's true in this society. Uh, I think uh, there are exceptions, and of course the, the beats come to mind as, as the principal ones. Uh, Then, in recent years, uh, I've almost written exclusively uh, Japanese, uh, uh, or imitated Japanese poetic forms, particularly the uh, haiku. Uh, I have a ten-syllable version because I understand that syllables are much shorter in in Japanese than in English, and I like to try to capture that brevity. I'm still learning the rules of, of haiku writing, there are a number of them. Uh, as I go along, so a lot of my, uh, a lot of my productions wouldn't be considered uh, classically authentic in a, in a Japanese uh, sense, particularly the ones that I wrote a few years ago. Uh, it's a very good discipline, though, to, to try to say something uh, significant in ten syllables, and uh, that's principally why uh, I'm restricting myself to that form uh, as far as poetry goes at this time. Uh, it's uh, also true in Japan that when somebody becomes a poet, they pick a poetic form and they stick with that form all their lives. Uh, if the, it would be like in, in this country, uh, if you wrote, wrote quatrains, you wrote quatrains, if you wrote sonnets, you wrote sonnets. Um, and I might do that. I might stick to writing uh, uh, ten-syllable poems for the rest
2: of my life. Let's get back to the uh, the beat scene again. What can you tell me about that? What, uh, sort of
3: Well, I was on temporary additional duty in the United States uh, 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 when I was in the Marines, and uh, I won a Technique of Instruction contest, and I was uh, in waiting to go back overseas on Treasure Island up in uh, San Francisco. I, I used to walk over to North Beach and walk around, and uh, uh, I had never smoked marijuana. I'd heard of it, and I used to uh, past people and I would wonder sometimes if the smell of their cologne was that uh, sickening sweet smell of marijuana as somebody had described it to me uh, I read Howe when I was uh, there on Treasure Island and uh, that influenced me a whole lot uh, Gin- Ginsburg's whole attitude toward life uh, impressed me uh, very much and influenced me a lot and I got into the poetry uh, of Gary Snyder at some point Probably after reading the Dharma Bums, and uh, that's uh, that's also been to me not only a big influence on my poetry but also on my political thinking and uh, broader cultural thinking as well. In fact, uh, I consider myself uh, my book Zenarchy, to be a popularization of Gary Snyder's ideas.
2: Okay. Um Tell me about your experience with the Atlantic as far as poetry goes. I know you've been published. I, I, well, I'm personally not aware if you've performed that. I haven't, haven't done any readings at all. I, uh,
3: I, have, I hang a lot of stuff on the walls. Uh, there was a Chinese poet called Han Shan. He's a big uh, inspiration in Zen. and um, I had a weird thing happen to me about him. Um, I, I had been reading stuff about Zen for years and I'd never encountered Han Shan. And uh, one day, I happened to read uh, something about him—a biography of him—which I found a short biography in a a book on Zen, which I found extremely interesting. So I went to the library and I checked out a book of his poems. And that day, it so happened I didn't have any money with me, or uh, at least not enough to ride the bus home. So I—and I was living out in Buckhead at the time. uh, So I walked, uh, I walked down Peachtree Street, and uh, when I got. up there, somewhere near the um, Midtown Marta station, uh, I uh, noticed a, a gas station and a parking lot uh, on a corner, and I decided I'd go over there and see if I could knock any coins out from under their uh, vending machines so I could get bus fare to ride the bus the rest of the way home. And uh, there's a it's a sunken parking lot and one corner of it was once the basement of a building, and the walls of that basement are still standing there, and there, painted in acrylic paint, in enormous letters, were the words, Gone, and a million leave no trace, Hanshan. <laughs> They'd been there for a long time. It had to have been a coincidence. <laughs> anyway, it just blew me, blew me away. And... Um, so uh, the the thing about Han Shan is that he was the first graffiti artist. He used to paint his poems on uh, on rocks and and trees and and what have you. He was an eccentric hermit who lived uh, on a mountain in China called Cold Mountain. And that's what he that's what Han Shan means, in fact, in uh, in Chinese. And uh, so uh, I've been posting uh, little uh, fly leaves. I've got just stacks of them here with quotations from uh, from various books about Zen and Wilhelm Reich and so on and so forth, and they're interspersed with little fillers that are, uh, consist of my uh, ten-syllable poems, and I've been putting those up on telephone poles and walls and around, mostly around little five points for the last oh, four or five years now. And then I published some stuff in uh, Afterbirth magazine that... Uh, that uh susan uh god i don't uh, her last name escapes me uh however she published some of my poems here in atlanta i think that's as far as local exposure of poetry goes that's it
2: what's your basic what's your
3: general impression of the
2: poetry scene in atlanta i've pretty much
3: ignored it i went to one poetry reading here years ago which i uh uh found in the seven stages theater which i I liked, but, uh, I just, uh, I, w- I was just passing through town at the time, uh, I was, uh, that was when I was living on the road, mostly, and, uh, I don't know, I, I'm not a social person as far as my writing goes, I, uh, I like to write alone, and I, I don't like to read my writings, and I don't very often, uh, pay much attention, uh, if there were some good poetry readings in the sense of, like, poetry readings and jazz and so on and so forth uh, I, I might be interested but to like, as Clint called them, Tuesday afternoon poetry reading circles uh, j- just don't strike me as uh, uh, the best use of my time
2: Okay, let's talk about Principia Discordia now well, What about
3: Principia Discordia?
2: How did, how did that uh, come to be? How uh, what what. What forces in the world brought that about <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and how to change your life? Well, um, a young friend of mine
3: and I, uh, back in, uh, well, I say young, he was just a couple of years younger than I was back in the 50s, were uh, sitting around in a bowling alley in 1958 to be exact, somewhere in the vicinity of Whittier, California. Uh, and we were uh, discussing... Uh, philosophy, and we're talking about order and chaos. And uh, my theory was a Darwinistic theory, that uh, order uh, emerged from chaos uh, and was in fact simply the prevailing form of chaos, and uh, Greg's theory was that order was projected on the universe, that it didn't exist at all, that it was a creation of the human mind, that order was entirely in perception and had nothing to do with what was going on out there in a completely chaotic universe. And so somewhere in the middle of our argument, Greg happened to mention that there was a Greek goddess of chaos and confusion. And her name was Eris, spelled E-R-I-S. And I said, well, you know, what we need is not so much an explanation for order. We both agree to that. Uh, what the world needs is an explanation for chaos and why there's so much of it. And so there, at that point, we decided to start a religion uh, Worshipping the Greek goddess of chaos and confusion, who uh, the Romans called uh, Discordia, and thus Discordianism was born.
2: Did, um, uh, <clears throat> something I've been curious about, did uh, Robert Anton Wilson and them approach you about the ideas uh, about using this in their uh, Illuminatus trilogy?
3: Well, what happened was Wilson, excuse me, Wilson wrote me. Uh, before he ever got around to, before he, the Illuminatus Trilogy was even a glimmer in his eye, and he said uh, that uh, very early in our relationship that, that one of the things that uh, we needed were God models that were appropriate to anarchism, and uh, he had written some, Dao, some stuff about Taoism and about the, the spirit of the valley, the eternal female, and about Shang Dynasty, matriism, and so on and so forth, and... So uh, I suggested to him Eris Discordia, and I told him about the Discordian Society, and he was just enormously enthused about it, plunged it into it, got very active in it, and uh, is responsible for a lot of our, our creeds and dogmas, and so on and so forth.
2: Um, okay, let's, uh, let's hit the big one. What makes poetry good?
3: Uh, to me what makes poetry good is if it sticks in your mind. I think that's, that's the purpose of all poetry, that's the purpose of all the poetic devices, meter, rhyme, uh, uh, and in free verse also, just the choice of images and so on and so forth. The idea is, is to create something that, uh, that will begin repeating itself in the reader's mind over and over again, if only a refrain. And I think that makes poetry good because it makes it haunting, and I think that's what what people look for in poetry—something a little uh, a little beyond the ordinary, a little extra-dimensional in some way.
2: What advice would you give to an aspiring writer or a poet?
3: Oh, I don't know. Uh, It's—I uh, think maybe I would give the advice that a beatnik in the French Quarter gave me when I first got down there, which was. Uh, just write. Don't worry about anything else. Just sit down and write. Don't worry about what you are write, whether your writing is good or bad. Don't worry about who's going to read it. Just write. And everything else will take care of itself. And, of course, the more you write, the better you write. And uh, it's very important to be like Simon Chilito in A Fine Madness, to be just consumed with your writing. To uh, he uh, is a poet who, who constantly uh, is just writing, and uh, under any circumstances, in any situation, at one point he's, uh, one point in the book he's in an insane asylum and he's writing poetry on the toilet paper. That, that's the way to be a good poet, I think.
2: Can you tell me more about, more about the beatnik and the French Quarter? Well, the, the, uh, I
3: got the to the beatnik. French Quarter just about the time the word beatnik became passe and before the word hippie came into use and uh it was uh it was a a time uh of uh a lot of speed freaks a lot of benzodrine addicts a lot of aphenomen uh a heads as they're called uh and uh it was pretty intense there was a lot going on i i wasn't into uh i wasn't even smoking grass myself at that time uh i was pretty much into ayn ram i i was uh I was rather straight by French Quarter standards at the time, and uh, uh, the values of the Quarter didn't really catch up with me until after I left and went back out to California and began to appreciate what I'd left behind. Uh, the thing I remember most about the French Quarter is, is the, the time sense there was, was extremely strange. Time went by very slowly in the French Quarter, and I guess it was because so much was always happening. Uh, somebody would say, did that just happen last week? It seems like it was 10 years ago. And it seems like the three years that I spent in the French Quarter was 30 years. It's really, uh, and it's it's never been that way anywhere else that I've been and I still don't understand exactly why it was that way. But uh, that was the most uh, prominent feature of of the scene down there that everybody uh, seemed to recognize and agree about. Uh, the other thing I liked about the quarter was that it wasn't the self-conscious type of be- beatnikdom of, of San Francisco or Los Angeles that it was uh, there had been Bohemians in the French Quarter for a long time and it was just something that was taken for granted and uh, so uh, you could be very comfortable with it there were people down there who were what we would call rent-a-beatniks, they would rent themselves out to read poetry and so on and so forth at garden district parties and so and, and uh, etc that uh, uh, that was still going on when I was down there but not as much as previously as a couple of years before
2: what well, was the uh, probably opening a can of worms I may not want to hear but what is the <laughs> anything anything you don't want to talk about that's so all right. go ahead but um <coughs> What's been your strangest experience though, between the writing and, and the poetry scene? I mean, as far as the poetry scene, as far as anything like that, what's the strangest thing that ever happened to you? Well,
3: uh, I don't know. I guess it was probably Illuminati Lady. I wrote a poem called Illuminati Lady. I don't have a copy of it any longer. I wish I did. Uh, it was. Uh, it's mentioned in the Illuminatus trilogy as a poem you really ought to read. <laughs> And it was, it was intended as a poem of infinite length, which I, I, I never completed. And uh, one section of Illuminati Lady was called The Secret Teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. And in there, just to prove that uh, anything could be proven with quotations and citing references and books and so on and so forth, I decided that I was going to demonstrate in this poem that Mahatma Gandhi had committed suicide, that he had plotted his own assassination. And in the process of researching that premise, which I adapted, which I adopted to begin with because I thought it was ridiculous, I convinced myself that he did, in fact, plan his own assassination. And to this day, I think he committed suicide. I think he, he sat down with Savakar, who was the leader of the violent faction in Indian politics, and planned his own suicide. And Savakar has often been accused of, of being behind Gandhi's assassination. And I think he did it because of the extreme fighting that was going on at that time between Hindus and Muslims. And it was his way of trying to bring people back to their senses. Uh, There's enormous evidence for it. He predicted his own assassination uh, the night before he talked about it, that morning he talked about it. He predicted the method by which he was going to be assassinated, and he even predict predicted the words that he had, the last words that would be on his lips: "Ram, Ram, hai, Ram.
1: It so, uh,
3: just basically, God, God, oh, oh, God. Uh, but uh, that was uh, it. Was that uh, it? Was that weird? And he was also. He was also involved with Madame Blavatsky, which is very interesting. He said he wasn't fit to touch the hem of her dress. He thought she was a great, great mystic, a great person. (laughs) And, uh, of course, Madame Blavatsky's been accused of being involved with the Illuminati and with Freemasonry and this, that, and the other thing. So there's a lot of really weird tie-ins in in Gandhi's life. Uh, Another thing I found in the the process uh, of those researches that I touched on in the poem was that his... uh, most ordinary statements were often regarded as parables, and people were always finding cryptic meanings in the things that he said. Uh, so uh, that was by far the weirdest experience that ever happened to me. I also heard a rumor that, uh, that Meyer Lansky read that poem and liked it enormously. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. I like to think that it was. What What? i'm not familiar with the name Who is Why he, he, like he's, he was one of, he was the richest gangster in the united states uh, he he was uh, he was with bugsy seagull and al capone and so forth in the early days and uh, wound up owning the miami national bank and uh, and uh, uh, was by far uh, was one of the richest human beings in the united states and was certainly the most successful organized crime figure in america for whatever that's worth.
2: Okay. Is there anything you want to talk about?
3: Uh, I I don't know. I uh, the only thing that I'm uh thinking much about these days is uh is uh the relationship between Zen and anarchism. Uh there's a saying in Japan that Zen is poetry and poetry is Zen, so I guess that uh I guess in that sense, it's, it's uh, uh, something to do with poetry. Uh, I've all, I've, I'm not, uh, I don't consider myself enlightened, and I'm by no means a, a Zen master or a Zen teacher. In fact, all my uh, knowledge of Zen is based upon reading. Uh, the Zen masters say that's like reading prescriptions and saying, ah, what great medicine, and never taking any of the medicine yourself. I've, I've read, I'm sure, well over 100 books on Zen because the way they express themselves the way zen masters express themselves fascinates me uh their the, the choices of words it's very poetic in a very strange way because uh as uh, as the author of the blue cliff record says uh they say things that even clamps cannot get a hold of that there's just uh things that just uh well it reminds me of something that uh, greg hill used to do the phone would ring and he'd pick it up and he'd say wrong number please and he'd say i like that because there's no way you can make any sense out of it no matter how hard you think about it (laughs) and yet it sounds like you should it should make sense you know and um the other thing about that is that uh uh that that type of stuff sticks in your mind um my friend vic latham was a french quarter poet and uh and uh, a writer of short stories and uh, very good short stories uh and he used to keep a little notebook uh called hang-ups and this was when hang-ups was a hip term back then but it didn't refer to kinks or quirks it meant something that uh uh if you
2: it had if,
3: yeah if it hangs your mind up it's a hang-up you know <laughs> and so it was things like uh the people we uh think are inferior we uh discriminate against the people we know are inferior such as retarded children and so on and so forth, we, we, we treat with great uh, care and, and courtesy and build homes for them and everything else. Uh, that's a hang-up. Uh, uh, one time uh, the Zen master uh, Nansen uh, said to his uh, disciple Joshu, he says, I think sometimes uh, we should be more like the animals. And Joshu said, uh, what do you mean by that? And Nansen got down on all fours and Joshu trampled him and then ran and hid in the Zen meditation center behind a statue of the Buddha, probably. Any, anyway, uh, an attendant came in uh, who was sent by Nansen and, and asked him to come back. Uh, he, he wouldn't. He just uh, cowered behind the statue of the Buddha and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And so the attendant went back and told Nansen that and uh, Nansen was a little puzzled he understood the 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 he didn't understood uh, he didn't understand the need for repentance though and so he sent the attendant back to say well uh, what are you sorry about and he says I'm sorry I didn't trample him twice over (laughs) that's a hang-up you know (laughs) especially when you when it's supposed to be a religious parable (laughs) it's a real hang-up man tell me about your book Zenarchy well, Zenarchy, the ultimate project of Zenarchy, which I, I don't, didn't happen to reveal in, in uh, the book Zenarchy, uh, is to find some way to wake everybody up. They, they've done a lot of experiments, and not necessarily in the Zen sense. Uh, they've done a lot of experiments with, uh, with obedience, uh, performance and obedience perception uh, at uh, Ivy League colleges in the United States uh... the original idea was that they were going to compare americans and germans to try to figure out why germans were so obedient in the experiments uh... the americans turned out to be so obedient that they never bothered to go to germany uh... they would tell people for example there would be a doctor in a white coat who would tell somebody to pull a lever and that they thought uh, they thought that when they pulled the lever the subject of the experiment thought when he pulled the lever it was going to electrocute some guy behind a wall of glass in the next room and uh... 80% Eighty percent of the people would pull the lever without asking any questions, even though they didn't know what the doctor's position was. They didn't even know what his name was or anything else. He was just a man in a white coat who was telling them that, it, uh, that it, and it said on the lever, "Danger, high voltage," you know, so on and so forth. And the guy in the other room would be ah, in the chair like that, you know, and uh, they just keep on pulling the lever and. uh another thing they did was drawing lines on blackboards and there would be a whole classroom full of people who were in on the experiment except for one subject who would be sitting there and the uh, teacher would draw a three-foot line a two-foot line and a one-foot line on the blackboard and he would say all right I want you to tell me which line is longest and which line is shortest and the class would one by one as they go down through the members of the class they would all say that the shortest line was the longest line and that the longest line was the shortest line and so on and so forth and uh, what they found out was that if there was one person in the class that disagreed with the majority even if he said the middle line was the longest line and that the longest line was the shortest line uh, then the subject of the experiment would say that the longest line was the longest line and the shortest line was the shortest line otherwise 80% of the time once again they would say whatever the rest of the class said, and not only that, they would defend it afterwards. <laughs> they, they they were abs, abs, they were convinced in their own minds that the that the class was right and that their own perceptions were wrong. So, uh,
2: or they were afraid to uh, to speak and say what they thought was obviously the case. In some
3: cases, yes. In some cases, though, they uh, they simply uh, they became they hypnotically convinced themselves, evidently. Uh, Pavlov's dogs once uh, all became unconditioned when the pipes broke in the laboratories and it it was very traumatic, all this water flooding the laboratory and he had to condition the dogs all over again to get them to salivate when the bell rang and all that. So there there are ways of deconditioning people Uh, and uh, this is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in finding some technique by which great masses of people can be uh, broken out of their authoritarian conditioning all at once Uh, Zen doesn't do that Zen is a one-on-one thing it's master disciple psychotherapy doesn't do that it's doctor patient it's a one-on-one the the project the uncompleted project of, of Zenarchy and and all Zenarchy as far as I'm concerned all writings that are Zenarchist writings are notes toward that end to figure out exactly what that type of enlightenment is, that type of liberation from authoritarian conditioning is, and how to achieve it uh, on a wholesale basis.
2: Do you want to talk about Kennedy or Oswald?
3: Uh, if you want, yeah. I was in the Marines with Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, all my life I've been fighting this, this tendency to be typecast as Oswald's Marine Corps buddy, because I always I feel like I'm not becoming known in my own right when I become known as simply as somebody who knew Oswald. But uh, I was in the Marines with Oswald, and um, even though at the time of the Kennedy assassination when it was announced that Oswald was involved, I at first assumed that he was innocent. Later on, because of the reports in the newspapers, uh, I had great faith in the free press back in those days and and in competition and the free market of ideas and all that, I thought that uh, since they were all saying that he was guilty i assumed that he was i even wrote a book to that effect i testified for the Warren commission and i wrote a book to the to the effect that uh... it's ex- trying to explain why oswald assassinated kennedy uh, it was called oswald it was published in 1965 and uh... then uh... along about uh, nineteen seventy five to be exact when watergate was uh... was really in full swing i began to realize that uh... Uh, these Watergate burglars had a lot in common with some people I knew in New Orleans that were always talking about assassinating Kennedy. Uh, after it happened, uh, I assumed that they didn't have uh, anything to do with it because for one thing, one of them who the one of them that I trusted the most told me that they they didn't. Uh, however, it became very obvious with Watergate that they had been involved. It was two men that I knew in the, in New Orleans. And one of them was just like a Watergate plumber, and it was, he was, also had mafia connections. He knew a whole lot about the CIA. He was just uh, like detailed stuff about CIA operations that hadn't been published then. And uh, he knew a whole lot about what was going to happen in the future. He said he was going to make Nixon president after he assassinated Kennedy. Uh, he said he wanted to. He talked about wanting to see something like what t- w- we now think of as the Manson family among the Bohemians and the hippies. That uh, he was a he he was a Nazi, and he talked a lot about uh, how Bohemian and Hitler had been in his early days. How he he, he uh, I forget what the Viennese word for a, a Bohemian was back then, but Hitler wore his coat over his shoulders with his without his arms and the sleeves and and uh... sat around in, in coffee houses in Vienna a lot and so on and so forth so uh, uh, uh... this guy was was talking at that time about creating somebody like a like a charles manson like a like a hippie hitler so to speak and uh...
2: to make enemies out of the hippies so they would have to be smashed out. maybe
3: yeah i don't know what his motives were but he just uh... uh Anyway, he talked about killing Martin Luther King. He talked about any number of things. Uh, he talked about fighting an Asian race instead of invading Cuba because Castro is a white man, and he didn't want to invade. He didn't want the United States to go to war with, uh, with, with the Cubans because so many of them were white people that he thought if there was a war against communism, it should be against an Asian race instead. He, he knew So by 1975, I began to realize that this guy that I thought was a nut Uh, knew what he was talking about and was probably centrally involved in the assassination conspiracy. And so I went, uh, at that time, Reginald Leaves here in town was investigating the Martin Luther King assassination. He was Commissioner of Public Safety at that time. And I went to him, or to his assistant, and and told him uh, what I knew, what what I could remember right off the top of my head about this guy down in New Orleans uh, who had used the same word that some guy in Atlanta had used about killing Martin Luther King and framing a jailbird for it. This guy talked about framing a jailbird for the Kennedy assassination. And I had said, why do you want to frame a jailbird? And uh, I wound up saying, well, why don't you frame some communist? And he smirked. He couldn't even look at me. He had to look down at the floor because he was smirking so much because he knew that's what I was going to say, and he was already planning to frame Oswald. So uh, it was really... uh, a weird experience for me because I was writing this novel uh based on Oswald when Oswald defected to the Soviet Union I decided to write a novel about a Marine who becomes disenchanted with the US and goes to the Soviet Union and so it was like the hero and I didn't like Kennedy I was extremely anti Kennedy myself because I was so much into Ayn Rand and laissez-faire capitalism objectivism and Kennedy was the arch villain of of our uh, of our movement at that time and uh It was like the hero of my novel jumped up off the pages of my book and shot the president it was it was it it was very weird Uh, however I thought it was a coincidence I wound up dismissing it as a coincidence until 1975 Uh, in the meantime though more coincidences had accumulated I had met Guy Bannister uh, a figure a suspect in the garrison probe I had met Clay Shaw Two weeks before the assassination and a, um, a discussion of my book about Oswald the idol warriors was involved and I had met David Ferry and I had met uh, a number of other uh, of garrison suspects uh, a stringer for Life magazine named Dave Chandler and uh, so it was like uh, uh, I had even worked in a, in a restaurant where Oswald had lived in his youth uh, with his mother uh, At the same time? Uh, yeah, uh, no, no, back many years earlier. Uh, anyway, I worked there uh, later, and in, and in, in right around the time of the Kennedy assassination, I was working in that restaurant. In fact, I celebrated the Kennedy assassination with the guy who uh, who owned that restaurant. <laughs> and recently, there was a current affair piece on me, and they interviewed me, and they also interviewed him uh, briefly, uh-huh. Carlos Castillo uh that restaurant was a a pool hall at the time oswald and his mother lived right upstairs Mm -hmm. right in the same building uh so uh, there were meaningful coincidences and meaningless coincidences but there were just enormous numbers of coincidences and a lot of them were pointed out to me by jim garrison's assistants and by jim garrison himself when well, he came after me in 1969, accusing me of, or, or actually 1968 and 69, accusing me of being a CIA agent, and so on and so forth, and being involved in the assassination. At that time, I didn't think I was. But I could not explain all these weird coincidences. And uh, anyhow, uh, when Watergate happened, and when I began to think about these conversations with this, this weird character, this weird bald-headed nazi uh acquaintance of mine uh it began to make sense because he knew all these different things He, he he knew i was going to mexico that summer uh i had planned to stay in mexico for a month i came back a little early before the month was over oswald was in mexico city uh he knew all that stuff and so he could have arranged most of those coincidences he could have arranged for me to meet guy bannister he was probably working with guy bannister he could have arranged for me to meet clay shaw and david perry and so on and so forth because they all were arranged meetings it was almost like these people were going out of their way to shake hands with me and that was pretty much it
2: Hmm.
3: so it was very strange it still seems very strange to me although these days i feel like i understand a lot more about the assassination than i did then of course
2: how do you think they got oswald to be in that building on that day at that time did he actually think he was going to
3: the he worked there he worked there he
2: worked in the building
3: yeah ruth payne got him a job there ruth payne's husband works for bell aircraft as a one of the top nazis general i forget whether it's Dornberger or Dornberg. anyway was, was involved with Bell Aircraft. Bell Helicopter was about to go out of business until the Vietnam War, and uh, then they made enormous amounts of money building helicopters.
2: Um, I realize it's a speculation, but I mean, I, I can't help but wonder, what, I mean, what... He was just there at the same time? I mean, he was totally set up, or did he, did he have some well, notion he was going to... In
3: my opinion, he was not on the sixth floor at the time of the Kennedy assassination. He claimed that he was on the second floor when the shots rang out. There is a secretary whose testimony appears in the 26 volumes that was not quoted in the Warren Report. I was quoted four times. Uh, I have known Oswald since 1959, but they quoted me four times. This woman spoke to him immediately after the assassination. They didn't quote her. She said that Oswald walked up to her right after the assassination on the second floor and said, what happened? Because phones were ringing on her desk and she was answering. And uh, she told him, uh, there's a photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald standing on the front steps of the Texas School Book Depository uh, a few seconds before the shots were fired. Uh, his shirt is unbuttoned. They said The Warren Commission said it was Billy Lovelady, not Oswald. Billy Lovelady evidently looks something like Oswald. Billy Lovelady says he was wearing a red and white vertically striped shirt buttoned to the collar that day. This guy in the picture has a shirt unbuttoned about like that with a white T-shirt on underneath, which was what Oswald was wearing. Uh, he's obviously uh if he wasn't lee harvey oswald he he was somebody that looked exactly like lear harvey oswald and was dressed exactly like lee harvey oswald for for even purposes of even greater deception in order to further confuse the public but whatever the hell he was or whoever he was uh i went and stood where he was standing the parade uh if you see the oliver stone movie you'll notice the the, uh, the car with Kennedy in it was moving very slowly as it passed the school book depository. It had just made that turn uh, at the corner of Elm and Houston, and it was moving extremely slowly. All right, from uh, where Oswald was standing in that photograph, uh, the president's car would not have been visible after it passed the book depository it would have disappeared behind a concrete abutment that blocks the view uh, between Oswald and the area where the president was shot so Oswald would have turned around after the motorcade passed him at that point and would have made the very short journey up the stairs and would have been on the second floor at the time of the assassination, just as he said he was, just as the secretary said he was, and just as the photograph indicates, he probably was.
2: <clears throat> so, to your knowledge, he couldn't have possibly been on the sixth floor firing that shot.
3: No way, unless unless the person on the second floor was somebody deliberately impersonating him who looked like him there were oswald doubles there were people who went out and impersonated him. most of them did not look like him however uh, that would have been possible though that's the only possibility i can imagine it's the only way i could possibly explain it any either way there was a conspiracy there's no possibility that the lone assassin theory could be correct either way and that's a pretty far out possibility that there was a double layer. Yeah. Deliberately impersonating him. Mm-hmm. It is. It is possible, though. It's within. It's within the realm of of uh, possibility, not of probability, however.
2: Okay. Um, any last things you want to say before we shut off the camera? Oh, well,
0: uh,
3: I don't know. Uh, not that I can think of offhand. One thing I've always heard about poetry. Uh, or about poets is that, uh, or modern-day poets anyway, is that they uh, they read their own poems and they they spend very little time studying the poetry of other poets. And I think that's. Uh, I, th- I think I'm also guilty of that. Uh, there's been a very few poets that have that have caught my attention uh, in a way that they just fascinated me. Uh, Omar Khayyam, both the Fitzgerald translation and some of the original. Uh, uh, stuff of, by uh, more literal translations uh, Walt Whitman uh, uh, Ginsburg and Snyder and uh, some of the Chinese and Japanese poets and uh, I feel at this point in my life I, I wish I'd spent a little more time uh, uh, reading some of the others Emily Dickinson was one I, I paid a lot of attention to also but uh, there's a uh, there's an enormous amount of poetry in this world, not only English poetry, but uh, ethics and other languages and so on and so forth. And, and the more attention you pay to stuff like that if you're interested in writing poetry, uh, the richer your own poetry is going to be, because without having to actually directly steal material, you can, uh, still, uh, you can still appropriate poetic devices, and uh, also you can make allusions to the poetry of, uh, of other poets and uh, that always makes for richer and, and more interesting poetry. Did you read anything you wanted to read? Uh, well, I could read you some of the little haikus if you want. Why not? All right, like I say, uh, these are, uh, I, I should just call these ten-syllable poems. I shouldn't call them haikus. It's, it's pretentious to call them haikus because many of them violate the rules of haiku. Three very important rules are that uh, you should, uh, there should be a pause in the haiku, there should be something called a cutting word which is like a word of exclamation Uh, and also that it should be about uh, one lonely thing and if possible that uh, reference should be made to it indirectly. Uh, These ten-syllable poems don't follow uh, those rules very often and when they do it's usually by coincidence Seek not on autumn mountains. You are truth. Oh, yeah, and that's the other thing. You should make a reference to, to the season of the year in a haiku, if you can. You don't have to always follow all these rules, but uh, anyway, uh, uh, you should know the rules before you violate them. I didn't even know all the rules when I violated some of them. Like dragons in autumn trees, winds roaring. Yellow splash, paint on the road, just wet leaves. Cold tortoiseshell sky, a thousand birds din. An empty whirlwind with holes in both ends. Streets glitter, Christmas eve fog softens lights. Walks still damp from yesterday's cold rain, clouds, gray winter twigs, bejeweled with drizzle. This morning's ice-cold breeze strikes a wind bell. Snow everywhere, Sleep pelts my umbrella, shuffle through the crusty first snow careful. Tracks in the snow, slippery ice, wake up. Everyone moves slowly on icy snow, cold clouded, dull gray, glowing moon of pearl, a thin mist pervading all naked trees, cold weather dragon's breath and rising steam. pink flower tree and a breeze again blossoming delirious lyrical this is something I wrote this is a long poem or a longer poem than a ten syllable poem anyway uh, I forget who published this it was published somewhere uh, anyway it's about graffiti it's about the the joy of uh, of graffiti writing. It's called 1988 Spring Offensive. Raspberry, free dope and fucking in the streets, bolo revolution cry, posters where poetic terror struck. Again this time by the light of the April sun, my friend. This time by the light of the sun over an Atlanta afternoon spring offensive, gearing up for cool neighborhoods. At last and slack, close to home, everybody, smoking marijuana under peach smoking marijuana under peach blossoms and measuring the spectacle with the tape measure of measured time great and bespeckled birds singing notwithstanding contradictory terminology the reality of a secret spectacle contradiction or not confronting my friend everybody where poetic terror strikes a open window whispering rain splattering cautious April, seed-pecking, wet blackbird. Through the leaves goes the breeze, lifting white clouds. Cigar whiff and scented oil, the spring jaunt. A sparrow on the walk, catbirds above. Spring breezes flap, a poster, half unstuck. Blooming in all four seasons, haikus. Here are some uh, Japanese haikus by uh, 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 three of them that I'm going to read are by the most beloved haiku writer in Japan. Uh, the most famous and, and the most respected is Basho, but uh, the, most, the most loved by the Japanese people is Isa. Uh, Here's one of them. A sudden shower, naked I ride, bareback on a horse. Here's another. Keeping a lookout, the mother horse has her foal, lap up the spring water. And this is my favorite. Pissing through my doorway, I make a clean hole in the snow. Young robin, low rail to roof, in a swoop. Globe of light on a pole beside green leaves. Dreamy afternoon, the wind and the sun. This, this is a, a little longer than 10 syllables. Silently sitting in Zazen, the way of a frog. Chasing the tail of my thought, the way of a dog. Laughter on the airport fence. One magpie. This was this was written. uh, This I'll conclude with this. Uh, This was written uh, in response to something that uh, there was a a preacher in Little Five Points who was constantly writing things on my posters and and. uh, who was uh, always talking about Jesus and talking about how everybody, all the, everybody else's tomb were occupied, but Jesus's tomb was empty and this, that, and the other thing. Well, and it occurred to me that uh, Bodhidharma's tomb was also empty because uh, Bodhidharma, who brought uh, brought Zen to uh, to China from India, uh, when he uh, well the story's told here. So anyway, I put I put this uh, I put this uh, little uh, poster up in reply. Uh, it's called The Greatest Story Ever Told. Jesus preached for three years. Bodhidharma spent three years sailing from India to China. Jesus was born in a humble manger. Bodhidharma was just a barbarian. Jesus died on the cross. Bodhidharma's enemies knocked out his teeth. There are the same number of letters in Lincoln as there are in Kennedy, and both were assassinated by men with middle names, And replaced by Johnson's. Bodhidharma lived to at least 150 years. When he died he was buried on Yuji Mountain. Not long afterwards a Chinese official returning from India saw Bodhidharma wandering alone westward through the mountains carrying one sandal in his hand. So the authorities opened Bodhidharma's tomb and sure enough it was empty except for a sandal. Lincoln's tomb filled Kennedy's tomb, filled, Lee Harvey Oswald's moleskin-covered casket, occupied, Lenny Bruce's tomb, no vacancy, Grant's tomb, asked Groucho Marx, Bodhidharma's tomb, practically empty. How did he do it? For one thing, he sat in meditation once for nine years. For another thing, when he first arrived in China, King Wu asked him, What was the highest and most holy teaching of Buddhism? Bodhidharma replied, Vast emptiness without any trace of holiness. At a loss of anything else to say, King Wu then asked, Who are you? Bodhidharma answered, I don't know. And then he went across the river to the Shaolin Monastery and sat in Zazen for nine years, and yet all the king's men, nor all the king's horses, could not bring him back to court. In the minds of Zen students, the story of Bodhidharma poses one very puzzling and nagging question, which they are always asking their teachers, namely, why did Bodhidharma come from the West in the first place? I, I should read, come to the West, he came from the East. No, oh, I'm sorry, he came from the West, yeah. China, India is West of China, good good work, Kerry, good geography. Uh, why did Bodhidharma come from the West in the first place? The most common answer is a knock on the head with his Zen master's staff, although Joshua replied, the cypress tree in the front yard. For reasons which elude me personally, it never occurs to anyone to ask why he took one shoe with him back to India and left the other one behind. Bodhidharma was the first Zen master in China. Jesus said, before Abraham, I am. Mindfuckers live forever. <laughs> and I assigned it to Zenarchist Insurgency Group. And I won't oppress you with any more of my uh uh stumbling readings.
2: I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. Well, I guess that's it, huh? Alright. Ah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Go so I there's one other thing
3: about Bodhidharma. Uh One time, somebody asked him some question, and they uh, went through a lot of Buddhist theology, and uh, that some Buddha had said thus and such or the other thing, and he said he was dreaming, and so are you. Uh,
2: two, three. Okay, go for it.
3: There's one other Bodhidharma story that, in all fairness, I should tell you, and that is that. When I stepped into the uh, Zen Center up here in Candler Park one night, when I first uh, started going there, uh, just as soon as I stepped across the threshold, and uh, what had happened was the picture of Bodhidharma, the big bamboo scroll picture of Bodhidharma up on the wall, had fallen. So uh, be warned.